0: Let's just come before the Lord as we prepare to hear from his word this morning. Father God, we we thank you for this journey that we have been on together through this wonderful book. A book of um, history, a book that tells your story, and Lord, a book that reflects our story as well. Lord, this morning speak. Speak because we are listening. Lord, we long... to to hear what it is that you would have for each one of us this morning. Bless your word, Lord, as it goes out this morning. Amen. Well, if you've been following along with us each week and doing the, the reading at home ahead of time, you might have had the feeling this week that it was a little bit like Groundhog Day, that feeling that I've read this somewhere before. And if you had that feeling, then you would be quite right because you have read most of what we're covering this morning, somewhere before, and that would be two weeks ago um, when we uh, covered the preparations for the building of the tabernacle. And the chapters that we're going to cover today form the second part of what is a, a tabernacle sandwich. So the words that Pastor Glenn spoke from last week, chapters 32, 33 and 34 that deal with the golden calf, the intercession of Moses on behalf of Israel, and the new stone tablets there, those chapters are like the meat in this giant tabernacle sandwich. There are 13 chapters in all that deal with the detail of the tabernacle. And that's a lot of words and much of it is instructional. And most of what you find either side of that meat in the sandwich comes in pairs. Before the golden calf incident, we have it presented in an instructional form, and after the golden calf incident, it is presented, but the description is in terms of the work having been carried out. So let me give you an example from the instructional side, from chapter 30. Verses 1 to 4, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a moulding of gold around it and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its moulding, on two opposite sides, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. And then if you flip over to chapter 37, verses 25 to 27, you find the corresponding passage, this time worded in the past tense. Instead of you shall make an altar on which to burn incense, we read they made the altar of incense of acacia wood, its length was a cubit, its breadth was a cubit, it was square and two cubits was its height, its horns were one piece with it, on and on and on it goes. And so you can see how one passage mirrors the other, only one is instructional and the other is in the past tense with the work having been carried out. Now, I've just given you one example, but you will find the same sorts of mirrored passages either side of that golden calf incident for descriptions of just about everything that has to do with the tabernacle. You'll find lengthy descriptions about poles, about canopies, about a basin, about utensils. There's recipes for fragrant oil and incense. There's the courtyard description, curtains, lamps, the priestly clothing, countless other things, they're all present in these mirrored passages. And to be honest, wading through all that detail doesn't make for the most exciting of reading for us. But can you think of anything else in the Bible to which is given over 13 chapters? The birth of Jesus, pretty important event, isn't it? It shapes Christianity. That only gets three or four chapters in just a couple of Gospels. What about creation? Surely creation is an important event worthy of a significant amount of space in the biblical narrative. Creation gets two chapters in just one book of the Bible. So the obvious question that has to be asked here is, Why so much detail? Why 13 chapters dedicated to the construction of the tabernacle? What is it about this structure that warrants 13 chapters? Well, as we've already seen, most of what we find in chapters 35 to 39 mirrors that instructional material found in chapters 25 to 30. Why is it necessary to repeat it when we've already got it? Why not just say, so they did it? And the answer to that question lies in that meaty filling that is in that tabernacle sandwich. Remember when God confirmed his covenant with them just a few chapters earlier, in chapter 24, Moses read from the book of the covenant and the people responded, we will do everything that the Lord has said. We will do obey. And in fact, if you look carefully through Exodus, you'll see that they make that statement no less than three times. But no sooner has Moses turned his back and headed up the mountain to receive the law written on stone tablets, than they've taken the gold, which should have been used in the construction of the tabernacle, and they've made a golden calf out of it Reminds me of Bruce and I trying to work from home at the moment. Our youngest girls beg for some sort of craft activity to keep them busy. And they promise that they won't make a mess. And so we give them the activity and we explain the terms of the agreement. And then he and I disappear upstairs to our study for half an hour perhaps without interruption. No sooner is our back turned than the transformation of our lounge room into a scene of chaos begins. It's not only the Israelites who are quick to promise obedience, it is innate in all of us. Israel had been so quick to promise their obedience and yet here they are in the blink of an eye breaking the commandments and trying to refashion God into someone who fits their mold and finds their kind of wild orgies acceptable. The repetition that we see here in today's passage is necessary to underscore that yes, this disobedient bunch are indeed now obeying fully and carefully and finally they are doing everything exactly as the Lord commanded. But that's only one part of the story. There are even grander reasons for all of this detail. You know, a lot of planning went into this beautiful building in which we now stand this morning and which many of you are yet to see, but it's waiting for us all when we come back from COVID. There were many, many long meetings that went into the planning of this building, many meetings that the property committee were involved in and that committee poured over the details of things like where cupboards would be placed, The colours of cabinetry, the types of door handles that we would have, the types of tiles, the paint colours, the stain colours, the carpet colours, the type of render finish. How silly was I? I thought there was only one type of render finish, but wrong. The type of decking material, that was a long conversation. Safety features, kitchen bench tops, toilet designs. Once again, I thought you just got a toilet and put it in, but no, there were plenty of designs to choose from. Taps, hand railings, it goes on and on. Graham and Damien literally became walking encyclopedias on all of these things, and yet as pleased as we are with the end result, it pales into insignificance compared with what is described here. It's been estimated that roughly a tonne of gold, today that would be worth around $33 million, was used in the building of the tabernacle. Three and a half tonnes of silver, two and a half tonnes of bronze, acacia wood, onyx stones, purple and scarlet yarns, fragrant spices, all kinds of artistry and craftsmanship. And the detail that is provided here is nothing short of astounding. Take a little look at the description of the lampstand for just one example, chapter 37, verses 17 to 24. Every detail of that lampstand is specified. How they were to hammer it out of pure gold, the number of branches to be made, the number of cups on each branch, the shape of the cups on the branch, like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. The lamps, the wick trimmers, the trays, the accessories, even the amount of gold to be used for that lampstand is specified exactly. But it's not just the lampstand that is described in this level of intricate detail, all of it is. Browse through these chapters and if you, even if you only look at the headings in your Bible, you'll get some sort of idea. The tabernacle itself, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the bronze basin the courtyard, the ephod, the the breastplate, all of the priestly garments, all of them are described in amazing detail. This is one seriously awesome tent and it begs the question, why? And we already know the answer to that question because God gave the answer himself back in the 25th chapter of Exodus, verses eight to nine. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. This was to be God's dwelling place among his people and it was to be made exactly according to the pattern that he showed them. And since the very beginning, God has longed to dwell with his people. That was the ideal of Eden. And since the fall, the whole rest of the Bible is a story of redemption and restoration, heading towards that magnificent moment in Revelation when a voice from the throne cries out, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And here in Exodus, what we see is just one step towards that ultimate goal. And Pastor Glenn mentioned last week, I think, or maybe the week before, um, many similarities that have been noted between the Garden of Eden and the description of the tabernacle. Many scholars have noticed these, the lampstand and its central location in the tabernacle, very similar to the tree of life in the middle of the Garden of Eden. God created the world in six days by speaking and he rested on the seventh. And then in relation to the instructions for the tabernacle, God says things seven times and the seventh concerns the Sabbath. There are cherubim guarding the entrance to the garden and an angel design is specified in the tabernacle for the curtain that screens off that most holy place. In the garden, the power of the Holy Spirit brings order from chaos. And in the tabernacle, the enabling of the spirit enables the craftsman to do the work on the tent. There are many, many other examples and if you're interested, there. Uh, Lots of books that you can have a look for yourself um, to trace through some of these similarities. It is fascinating and you'll find lots of material there, but as much as these parallels serve to remind us of God's perfect plan, the tabernacle was not merely a copy of the Garden of Eden. It had a much grander design, and that design is described for us in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, and this little section concerns Jesus. It says, now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned When he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And then in Hebrews 9, verse 24, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. The tabernacle then was to be the dwelling place, albeit a temporary dwelling place of God with humans, and its model was the heavenly throne room itself. So it's little wonder that when Moses was about to make the tent, God warned him to make everything according to the pattern shown on the mountain. Now, we've seen repeatedly on our journey through Exodus that this book points to what lies ahead in many, many ways. And so it should come as no surprise to you that as we come to the end of this journey, Exodus comes to a close with a nod to greater things yet to come. And so it's time for those pointy fingers to make a final appearance. And this time, it's not just a single leap ahead towards Christ or even to the cross, or onwards to Pentecost, Exodus goes out with a bang, pointing way, way beyond itself, beyond the birth of Christ, beyond his death, beyond his resurrection, beyond Pentecost, beyond even the second coming of Christ, to the heavenly throne room, and that time when restoration is complete and God dwells with man forever. That is the precious golden nugget at the end of all of those seams of gold that we followed right through this book of Exodus. Having completed all of the work, following precisely all of the instructions that the Lord commanded to them through Moses, the Israelites bring everything that they have made to Moses and at the very end of chapter 39, Moses inspects their work, sees that they have done it, just as the Lord commanded and he blesses them. Sound familiar? It should. God did a very similar thing at the end of his work of creation and here it happens again at the end of this work of recreation. The tabernacle is then set up and in verse, chapter 40, verse 34, the glory of the Lord fills it. The guiding presence of God is right there in their midst. Only one thing seems out of place or somehow disturbing in this account. Verse 35 tells us, Moses cannot enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled it. God is there. He's in their midst in the sight of all of Israel during all of their travels but Moses is looking from the outside, looking in. And if that's where you stop reading, you might be inclined to think that way, but that is not how this account is written. Exodus concludes like this. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all of their travels. And the very next word in the Torah is and. Leviticus 1.1 begins with a conjunction. It begins with the word and. And so many of our modern English translations have dropped the conjunction. I guess it's not good English to start a sentence with the word and, and it's especially not good English to start a whole book with the word and but it's there in the original and it tells us how we should read these accounts. They're meant to be read as one. And so at the end of Exodus, we take a breath and, and we keep going through Leviticus. And the high point of the story comes not here at the end of Exodus, but as was mentioned last week, about a third of the way through the book of Leviticus. The first verses in Leviticus and in the book of Numbers begin in an almost identical fashion. And I don't think that's any coincidence. Leviticus 1.1, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Numbers 1 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. The fundamental difference in those two verses is just one word. In Leviticus, God is inside, Moses is outside, God speaks to him from the tent of meeting. But in Numbers, God is inside, Moses is inside, and God speaks to him in the tent of meeting. What happens to bring this new level of intimacy is of course what we read about in the book of Leviticus. And I'm glad that Pastor Glenn strayed last week into Leviticus, I told him that at the end of last week's message, because I was wondering how I was gonna be able to explain the end of Exodus without straying into Leviticus and Numbers. Leviticus 8.15, Moses consecrates the altar with blood to make atonement for it. Leviticus 8.34, Moses sprinkles blood on Aaron and his sons to consecrate them for priestly duties and to make atonement for them. Leviticus 9.7, Aaron begins his priestly duties by sacrificing sin offerings and burnt offerings to make atonement for himself and the people. After the atonement had been made, the fire came out from the presence of the Lord to consume their sacrifices. That fiery judgment of the Lord that should have consumed them for their sins was turned instead to their sacrifices. Relationship restored. That's why they shouted for joy and fell face down. Much of the rest of Leviticus, the holiness code, the instructions for priestly duties, The process of annual atonement for sins is dedicated to constantly dealing with sin and uncleanliness. And as wonderful as it was, and it certainly was a huge step along this journey of redemption for all of humanity, as wonderful as all of that was, it was not the real deal because the tabernacle was just a copy of the heavenly throne room of God only one who was sinless could enter the real holy of holies, the throne room of God, and offer himself as a superior, perfect sacrifice to make atonement on all of our behalf. That fiery wrath of God that consumed the sacrifices in the tabernacle, Jesus took that upon himself. The price has been paid, and so Numbers one one is our reality too. We are in. We no longer stand outside looking in. Our relationship is restored and so we are in, so to speak. Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, it's a very long chapter, verse 89 tells us exactly what the intimacy of that relationship is like. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between two cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony. And he spoke with him. God is not far removed here dictating instructions. Moses spoke with him. And so can we. The way I see it, there are three ways to read the book of Exodus. You can read it as history, as an engaging account of the life and times of an ancient people. You can read it as his story, a powerful account of God moving among his people. Or you can read it as our Story because the story of redemption from slavery and of God's longing to dwell in our midst is as much our story as it is their story or His story. Our son Joel has helped us out a little bit this holidays. most recent school holidays by babysitting his two youngest sisters for a few days to allow his parents a little bit of uninterrupted work time. And Joel has introduced the girls to geocaching and they love it. And for all you parents who have been entertaining kids at home for 15 or 16 weeks now, you might want to consider geocaching yourself. All you have to do is you download the free app. And from the free app, you can get GPS coordinates and map references that will lead you to treasure that is hidden in little boxes all around parks and streets in all of the suburbs in Melbourne. Find the treasure box, and you can take something from it, provided you put something else in of approximate value. So take some trinkets along with you, some pens or pencils or stickers or Lego men or whatever you like. But the thing I couldn't believe about this activity was not only how many people are doing it, but how many of these treasures are in the parks and streets that I walk every day. I've walked past them frequently. Every day hundreds of people walk past them and they fail to notice their presence simply because they're not looking for them. And don't we often read the book of Exodus in that very same way? We journey through Exodus, but we miss the treasure when we read it only as history or even as his story. Exodus is an amazing historical account. There is absolutely no doubt about that. As a piece of history, it's almost unparalleled in terms of the drama, the details, the characters, and all of the foundational material that it contains, um, which later events in history build upon. As his story, Exodus has much to say about God. We've learned his very name, I Am, in Exodus. We've learned that he is compassionate and slow to anger. We learn about the importance of holiness, We learn that he's a God who keeps his promises. We see that he's a God who hears the cries of his people and takes action on their behalf. And, of course, we've seen him move in mighty and powerful ways. And we see that he cannot abide with sin. But if that's all that we see, then we're like that person walking through the park, admiring its beauty perhaps enjoying the benefits of exercise, but completely oblivious to the treasure boxes that are hidden all around the place. Exodus is our story too. And the treasure within it points right into our situation. And as we've seen today, well, well beyond it. Our challenge is to take and use that treasure to live out the implications of the exodus. We too were once captives, not captives to Egyptian slave masters, but captives to sin. We too have been dramatically redeemed by God. He has intervened on our behalf by sending his son to atone for our sins. We too know his presence in our lives, dwelling in our midst, not in some portable tent in the desert but in this earthly tent of our bodies God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit and so we need to live in the here and now as people who have been redeemed and are confidently heading to the promised land trusting God in our midst to provide for the journey and to lead us safely there. The book of Numbers narrates Israel's journey into the wilderness as they head towards the promised land. It's like Wilderness, Volume 2. But as those of you who have read it will know, tragically in that book we see Israel living not like people who've been redeemed by a holy and powerful God moving confidently towards their promised land, but we see them as a whinging, rebellious, fearful bunch who whinge about their diet, who whinge about water, who rebel against their leader Moses and who repeat so many of the mistakes that they made in Exodus. Worst of all, in spite of all of the promises that God has given to them, in spite of his very visible guiding presence in their midst, they remain fearful. And with the exception of only two, they die in the wilderness as a result. God never promised that the journey would be easy. But he did promise to journey with Israel. And he does the same for us by his Holy Spirit. And that should change everything about the way that we live in the here and now. Exodus is our story too. And so having been redeemed, it is our job to live like we are redeemed and to recognise God in our midst and to cooperate with him as we journey together towards the promised land. Father, forgive us when the image we have projected to others has not been of a people redeemed, confidently marching through the wilderness of life with you in our midst. Forgive us for our whinging. Forgive us for our rebellion. Forgive us when we have failed to cooperate with your Holy Spirit. Help us to walk in step with you, we pray. Help us to learn the lessons of the Exodus Help us to live like a people redeemed. Amen. May God, by his Holy Spirit, fill your earthly tent. May you know his guiding presence in your life each and every day as you continue your journey with him. Amen.